The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance in Security on Federal News Radio. I can tell that the conference season is heating back up and folks are excited to get back to in-person events. We're excited today to be highlighting kind of one of my favorite industry conferences. So if you're in the security space, the national security space, especially if you're listening to this and you're a facility security officer, cognitive security officer, someone who has ever heard of the acronym NISPOM in any capacity or knows what it is, this is a great event for you. So the NCMS conference is getting ready to to kick off in June. And I'm really excited to have two folks who really know a lot about NCMS as a professional organization and also about that event. So we have Lynn Burns, who is the president of NCMS, and Sarah Turner, a member of the board of directors of NCMS. I think professional organizations, associations have been really a great way for us to stay engaged as a community through COVID and now coming out of it. So I'm, again, excited to have them introduce this. If you're not familiar with the organization, I think it's a great time to get kind of reintroduced. The security community is obviously one that we're really passionate about at Clearance Jobs. It is certainly important now, as we see national news headlines highlighting security clearances everywhere, a lot of information, and then a lot of kind of misinformation or inaccurate information. So it's good to know that there are folks who are working in the security community that it is a fundamental and critical mission. You cannot have a classified program without a security officer to help manage that program. And again, professional associations like NCMS really are out there to help educate and inform and inspire the security community. And we really see that through NCMS. Uh, Lindy, thank thank you for inviting us to be here today. I think it's a really appreciate the opportunity to talk about NCMS and and what our our mission is, and especially about our seminar that's coming up. So I know you're gearing up for the annual seminar. So Sarah, I was hoping you could walk me through a little bit about what happens at the seminar and why this is kind of a pinnacle event for the NCMS community. Yeah. Hi, thanks, Lindy. We are gearing up for our annual seminar in just a few short weeks, and we're very excited. The seminar committee has been working tirelessly to bring what we hope NCMS attendees will find is one of our greatest seminars ever. I am excited to be the vice chair of the 59th annual seminar. It's going to happen in New Orleans, Louisiana, June 6th through the 8th. We've got a great venue at both the New Orleans Marriott and the Sheraton. And we have so much going on at the seminar. This year, we have three Monday courses, including an Enbus live demo and question and answer session that's being hosted by two of the leading Enbus industry professionals. We have a phenomenal eight-hour cybersecurity course taught by industry and DCSA subject matter experts. And we have the Getting Started for the New FSO course presented by CDSE. It's a very unique opportunity because the NCMS conference is the only place 
that individuals can take this seminar live and in person. Additionally, on Monday afternoon, we are proud to host the National Industrial Security Program Policy Advisory Committee, or the NISPAC, at their open meeting. The NISPAC is comprised of both government and industry representatives and is responsible for recommending changes in industrial security policy through modifications to Executive Order 12829 implementing its directives and the National Industrial Security Program Operating Manual. So we're very excited to have the NISPAC meeting at our event this year. We're going to kick the seminar off Monday evening with a welcome reception. That'll be held in the exhibit hall. Attendees can get together, network, share some drinks and food, and kind of wander through the exhibit hall and find out uh, what's going on and what kind of products are out there for industrial security professionals. And then officially on Tuesday, June 6th, the seminar starts in the morning with the general session. We've got some great keynote speakers all three days, including DCSA Director Leetzile and Redding on Wednesday, followed by the presentation of the James S. Cogswell Award. The Cogswell Award, for those of you who don't know, is the most prestigious honor that DCSA can bestow to cleared industry. In addition to the general session and all the Monday activities, we'll have a variety of workshops all three days in the afternoon, including workshops focused on professional development, program management, and DCSA and industry updates. We'll also have how-tos on preparing for an inspection, managing your insider threat program, building a positive security culture, scoping your environment for CMMC, and CompSec key distribution. We also have various workshops related to cybersecurity, Folk Eye, Security Review Process, and that's just to name a few. These workshops are taught by both government and industry subject matter experts. And if that weren't enough, we have more help desks than ever before this year. We have professional development opportunities, including resume review by some top leaders in HR management, interview pointers, and a professional photo lounge so that folks can update their Outlook profiles to have their best face forward when they send out an email. We also have the vendor, the exhibit hall and the vendor stage, and just so many networking opportunities. Registration is open. The seminar kicks off Tuesday morning and runs through Thursday afternoon. But like I said, we've got so much going on Monday morning and all day Monday, really, for that matter, that you might just want to plan to arrive and take part in all of the pre-seminar fun Monday. Shoo! I'm tired just hearing you say it, Sarah, but it sounds amazing. The good thing is in New Orleans, I don't think people sleep there anyway. So I'm going to go to the conference. (laughs) I'm going to stay up the whole time, nonstop training, nonstop learning. It is like having attended the conference, I will say it's a very content-rich seminar. There's a lot going on. I love how you bring together the whole camp of security professionals because I think I deal a lot with kind of the personnel security side of it, but NCMS is a great chance. You can really bring your whole team around that. So if there's, you know, different elements, the physical security, the cybersecurity, like you said, the personnel security piece of it, all of those different camps are kind of coming together and there's content and different tracks that appeal to folks that are working across this industry, which I really love. So talk a little bit again on that vein about the role of security professionals. Security clearances are in the news more than ever. And I I kind of love that and kind of hate it. Obviously, I hate the reason for it. It's always exciting to see people actually talking about our industry, but a lot of the information is not always accurate or positive. So the visibility is somewhat good. And I do think I like to take the opportunity to kind of highlight the security function. I do hope that hopefully organizations are seeing the importance of security professionals and what they do. 
Do you think organizations are starting to see the value, even what we're seeing in the news the past two weeks, but kind of talk about the momentum about the security profession. Do you see, even from the conference year over year, more interest in security professionals and this is a profession? I'm going to punt that one to Lynn. We do have a large number of attendees already and we're still six weeks out. Um, So we are hitting goals and I think that people are really starting to take notice of the importance of security professionals. But I'll turn it over to Lynn. So, Lindy, it's a great question. I do think the focus of security professionals has really got more attention in the last couple of years. And a lot of that has to do with the cyber maturity model certification. When they came out with the guidance for that, a lot of companies said, well, that sounds like our security person's job. Not. It's more of the CISO's job. But it really did help bring a lot of attention to security. Any company that does business with the Department of Defense has to have an FSO if they, if they're if they're processing security clearances or they're protecting classified information and those FSOs they need training and NCMS is the best I like to say we're the premier place to get that training uh, we that's our full purpose is to provide training for security professionals companies are starting to recognize that so in the past a lot of companies would would focus on on the cost of the seminar and the cost of sending their person on travel for a week and the cost of having that person out of the office for a week and and I do think that companies are starting to recognize the value of it uh, every year the number of people that go that attend our seminars goes up and up this year I think we're, gonna, we're probably going to hit 1500 people at our seminar and and that will be I think probably a record for for any seminar that we've had in the last 10 years. I do think that there's a lot of focus on security that, like you said, the items in the news, that brings a negative focus on us. But I think just because of the way things are changing in government regulations and in the way that companies have to, as I said, with the cyber maturity model, respond to those regulations, I think we are seeing a a resurgence in in security focus. I love you bring up, you know, CMMC and the, the focus on that. And I do think that there is, there has been a push that's even just been over the past several years and saying, hey, you know, this is important to companies bottom bottom line, like security needs to be invested in all of that. And that's even, you know, coming out of a few sessions that I heard at NCMS last year, we're focusing on who does security need to bring in? And increasingly, it is the C-suite, you know, president, CEOs, they want to know what's going on in security. You can't really stovepipe those functions anymore. And there's a lot of value for companies and organizations to bring their professionals out to something like the NCMS seminar to say, hey, this is a chance to get to know other folks in the industry to see what's going on out there and to make your training programs more robust because companies do have insider threat training requirements. And a lot of emphasis on that, I think, is going to be just the heat is going to be turned up even more. So investing some in your in your talent and in your security office right now seems like definitely a good move. Along that vein, professional development has definitely been a big push in NCMS in the past few years I've seen. Mentorship, you mentioned the professional development, training opportunities even that will be at the seminar. Why is NCMS kind of focusing on professional development and mentorship for security professionals? Definitely focusing on professional development. As you know, there is the great resignation. We do unfortunately have an aging workforce and we're trying to get more people spun up and excited to take on these roles in security, um, be it personnel security or cybersecurity what have you. So NCMS is really pushing professional development, not only with the mentee-mentor relationship avenue that we pursue, but also through the NCMS communities page called The Hub. The Hub is a really great resource where members can collaborate, ask questions, run ideas through each other, and connect with other like-minded security professionals. We have various communities, including General FSO, ISSM, 
the seminar has its own community. We have an academia community, ComSec community, CUI, Controlled Unclassified Information, FOCI, Insider Threat, NISP systems that includes DIS and eventually NBIS and NIST and DIS. Um, all of those systems that our industrial partners use for their job. We also have a security consulting community. These are just to name a few. Recently, we added a community for our Department of Energy partners so that they can join in and collaborate on their customer and their trials and tribulations with DOE. In addition to the hub, I'm really excited to announce that we are working a professional development effort that will encompass much more than just mentorship. Our vision is to prepare security professionals for the next level of their career, be it moving up to a manager role or maybe doing a lateral going from parsec to physical or you know, I've tried all of these things in, in industrial security. I really like to make the move over to cyber. That's kind of what we're going to focus on and get these get these folks ready and excited for the next step in their career. Because, you know, Lynn and I aren't going to be, hopefully, be in the workforce forever. And when the time comes for us to kind of step on and move out, we would like someone to take over the reins. And that's not going to happen if they don't have the proper training or the proper guidance. So and we've got a new generation coming in ready to take the wheel. And we really want to focus on keeping them in industrial security. And we hope to be able to guide them on that journey through the professional development aspect of NCMS. I love that. I mean, that gets me really excited for what you guys are doing and the value of NCMS from just, you know, the broader focus of this industry, because we just see that we did our annual state of the FSO survey that we do at Clarence Jobs. I mean, it's good because there's a lot of experience in the security profession, but that's one thing that we saw is the graying of the workforce, right? We had more respondents on the higher end and fewer on the lower end. And then the upskilling and reskilling piece of it is key because we have, you know, huge groups coming out maybe of the military that have some kind of slice of this, but how do they really pivot it or grow a career in it? So being able to show them the path of a security professional and how you can start and build and grow take lateral assignments, do different things, keep, keep, keep the field interesting. I think that's a, that's a great focus. And I think it's going to provide a lot of value, not just to the security community, but what we're all doing in national security overall, because as Lynn talked to earlier, you can't have a classified program without an FSO to manage those DOD programs. So we really need to focus on this if we want to have, you know, defense budgets are going up, I see. So we need to invest in security too, to go along with it. On that vein, those are my only questions. Are there any other uh, things that you wanted to go over or highlight about either NCMS, the seminar, or other things that are going on? You mentioned people coming out of the military. I wanted to grab that thread for a moment. We are developing what we're calling Miller Mentoring, and it's a program where people coming out of the military, if they're interested in, in security, we're going to mentor them through NCMS and then try to give them contacts with companies that, that may hire them based on the training that they've received from NCMS. So we've been we've been about six months or a year trying to put all the, the pieces of that together. And I think we're getting close to rolling that out. Uh, so I'm really excited about that because it's going to allow us to give back to the military and, and help them to, to steer a profession after they get out of the service. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, you heard it here, classmgmt.com is where you need to go. So check it out. Um, learn more about NCMS. Learn more about the seminar. And as Sarah said, there's still time to register, sign up, and come find us all in New Orleans. Do, am I allowed to wear Mardi Gras beads for the duration of the security conference? Or is that considered unprofessional? 
Nope, that's <laughs> absolutely. It's New Orleans. Anything goes. Okay, perfect. Hey, most I anything. Feel like it's, a, it's a bold move for a security conference to be in New Orleans. Let me just say, and it just shows how great NCMS is because they will leave no area unturned. The conference, you know, the seminar rotates every year. Um, and it's a different location. So I love that you decided to have it in New Orleans this year. I think it's a, a great place. And um, again, always a good time to network with other professionals and, and get just a lot of learning done in a, in a short amount of time. So check it out again, classmgmt.com. Thank you so much, Sarah and Lynn, for joining me today. Thanks for having us on. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about is a suitability tidal wave coming? And boy, Lindy, this is a hot topic of late. We've got Trusted Workforce 2.0 and enrolling all federal employees in suitability. I guess I should say federal workers, contractors as well. Federal employees have always been subject to suitability and, and contractors as well, but it's a different ballgame now. And I think a lot of people are waking up to this realization that they are subject to the suitability rules and things are getting a little messy for some folks. And we're starting to see a lot of questions, I think, percolate on this. So what's been the biggest surprise for you or the biggest thing that you're seeing on this topic? Yeah, so we're always going to talk about suitability and the security clearance process. So we know that if you have a security clearance, you've also been a part of some kind of a suitability determination as well for the government agency that you're supporting. And what I've heard is that as Trusted Workforce 2.0 rolls out to even more of the population, what we're going to have is just a much larger population involved in some form of suitability. And I still have a lot of unanswered questions here. And somebody from the government was even like wanted to walk me through this process, but I haven't had that phone call yet. So maybe if that happens and I'll know a little bit more, but I think there's going to be, in my mind, they say it's going to be better for transfer of trust because that's like the next iteration that we we have with Trusted Workforce 2.0, right? We're going to have a reduction in the number of tiers. We're going to have a little bit less discrepancy between, in some cases, what like a high-risk public trust and a secret clearance. What those look like is going to be a little bit more streamlined. Again, as I understand it, a rollout of more folks into continuous vetting, continuous evaluation. That seems to me like a bigger population that's a part of some form of government suitability and that the reciprocity and transfer of trust piece is not necessarily going to get easier. And as we know, like public trust, positions of public trust, which are not the same security clearances, those determinations, in my experience, can take as long or longer than a security clearance determination. And there is not necessarily the same due process afforded for suitability or public trust cases. Now, is that is my understanding of that correct? And that's where I'm always kind of trying to figure out what that looks like and how if we have more folks that are enrolled in some form of suitability, is that going to create bigger issues if you're denied suitability? If that determination is in this system and there's a better system of record keeping, is the suitability denial going to have repercussions in other employment decisions across the government, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. And it's messy and it's very very complicated how this plays out, but I'll give you kind of the quick and dirty on it. As I said earlier, all federal employees and contractors are already subject to suitability requirements. Uh, For contractors, it's usually called a contractor fitness determination or sometimes a contractor suitability determination. That's not new. What is new is, frankly, people's awareness that they are subject to this. And to some extent, the level of 
aggressiveness or assertiveness, I guess, that we're seeing on the part of some federal agencies in how they are viewing things through a suitability lens. So I'll give you some examples. First, to your point, to your question, rather, yes, there is less due process most of the time for suitability determinations. So this is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, If you're denied suitability as a federal employee or federal contractor, it's not a security clearance denial. So a lot of people breathe a huge sigh of relief when they find that out and they realize that they don't have to answer that they've been denied a security clearance on an SF-86. Now, they do have to still list the investigation. So there's a separate question, obviously, on the SF-86 that asks, has a federal agency ever investigated your background? So that would be, you know, yes, they would list the investigation, but they would not have to list that they were denied a clearance. The flip side of that coin is there's a lot less due process most of the time. So there are some federal agencies that do grant appeal rights on a suitability denial. If they do, it's generally just a one-shot written appeal only, and that's it. So an example of that is the Board of Examiners for the Foreign Service. If you are an applicant for the Foreign Service, they toss a lot of people from that process on suitability grounds and you get a one-shot written appeal only. Now, I say most of the time because there are some folks who go through the process at DOD who are contractors at other agencies that have a reciprocity agreement with DOD who get the same level of due process that they would get if they were going through a security clearance adjudication. Then you have this whole other basket of agencies that give no appeal rights. Examples of places that fall into that category would be NSA, CIA, some other agencies where, you know, whatever it is, isn't enough to deny you a clearance, but they just don't think you're a good fit or there's some little things that they're not comfortable with and they toss you on suitability grounds. There's no appeal and that's the end of the road. I think most people erroneously assume that if they're going to get tossed from the process, it's always like for a security clearance denial. And that's just not the case. So we get a lot of suitability cases that come in our doors. Oftentimes people think it's a security clearance denial and we have to educate them that these are slightly differing processes, different standards, unlike the security clearance process where the adjudicative guidelines kind of lay out potential mitigating factors Suitability denials are governed under the Code of Federal Regulations, which is totally different ball of wax. So it gets very wonky and very complicated. But the bottom line is, I think as more people are becoming aware, they are governed by the suitability rules. And as agencies get more aggressive in how they're asserting their prerogatives under those rules, I think we're going to start to see more and more people who are tossed from application process, either as a federal employee or a federal contractor on suitability grounds. And the reason for that is because in most cases there is less due process, it's a lot cheaper and quicker and easier for federal agencies to do that than to give somebody the security clearance due process. Yeah. So that's definitely a question. Do some agencies use suitability as a reason to vet people without without really having to vet them, A. And then my second question too is, so suitability is, my understanding is that it differs across agency to agency and there's no requirements for suitability to be the same. It seems like as we're reducing the tiers and with Trust Worker Force 2.0, why can't we have a government-wide suitability determination? Is that a bad idea, a good idea? This is, again, where it gets really complicated. I mean, Technically, there are provisions that say that, you know, somebody who has received 
a favorable adjudication on suitability grounds doesn't need another one to go work at a different agency. But practically speaking, that doesn't really happen. And a lot of agencies find reasons to justify having to do a new investigation on somebody. We see this all the time in the intelligence community. They just flat out take a hard pass on the idea of reciprocity uh, most of the time. A lot of these things that are supposed to happen in theory just don't. And because some agencies are just so resistant to the idea of, you know, not doing their own vetting on somebody, it just, it just doesn't happen. So that's one part of the problem. There are a lot of people, I would say, who suffer this fate when it comes to suitability, who, you know, could probably be saved or could save themselves by a little bit of additional legwork up front. So I think that's also something that's really important to talk about here, because the reality is, in many cases, people aren't even getting to the background investigation phase, right? Like, a lot of people don't understand that when their application goes in the door at a federal agency, whether it's as an employee or a contractor, before the investigation even starts, most of these agencies are doing an initial suitability screen on the SF-86 or the SF-85P itself and saying, is there something on here that we just don't even want to waste our time with? And if that's the case, then the person doesn't even get put into background investigation. That's it. They get a letter saying, you know, thanks for playing. Adios. And that's a tough pill for some people to swallow because they say, hey, yeah, I I know I, I admitted to, you know, past experimental drug use, for example, on my paperwork. But had you asked me some questions, I would have explained to you that, you know, this is all in the rearview mirror. I've got all this corroborating evidence to back that up. And what we have to tell them, sadly, is... It's too late in many cases to make that case unless you're being given an appeal, which not all agencies, again, do. And so the reality is with the increasing assertiveness of the suitability process at many agencies, it's becoming more and more important that applicants are utilizing the comment section on the SF-86 or the SF-85P effectively and providing mitigating information where applicable so that somebody who's reviewing this form in the security office, when they see that, for example, there was past drug use, they also see, oh, you know, here's all these, you know, mitigating factors that the person has laid out in the actual form. And so I can be comfortable that there's a good probability they're going to pass background. Therefore, you know, we'll let them continue. It's still confusing to me, Sean. <laughs> I don't think I've ever figured out suitability, but... I get it. It's a story of my life. I mean, I, I'm always baffled at how agencies make a determination that something is suitability versus security because half the time it could go either way. And half the time we see agencies trying to shoehorn in things and claim their suitability when they're actually, you know, there's nothing in the suitability regulations that support that. So I think the bottom line is any employer, whether it's the federal government or elsewhere, is going to find the easiest, cheapest way to get somebody, you know, onboarded. And I think what a lot of agencies are realizing is, unfortunately, the security clearance process isn't the cheapest and easiest way to do that. It's to flush them on suitability grounds. I I think as things evolve with Trusted Workforce 2.0, that's something that's going to have to be addressed is, you know, are we giving people a fair shake? Yeah. Well, no, I think suitability determinations are being used to vet people for employment issues and not anything related to suitability is my experience or understanding. And I wish there was a better way to splice out what is a security clearance, what is suitability, and what is just your agency-specific employment requirements. But I guess... 
Maybe someday. Yeah, we can dream, right? (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.